It's the 10th of February, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live, RoomNow.live. For more information, the best meeting in rheumatology, it's going to be March 18 and 19, co-hosted by myself and Dr. Artie Cavanaugh. It's going to be great. You should be there. Great rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this. This week on RoomNow.com, nothing but good news for the field and you practitioners. Uh, an interesting report about enthesitis-related arthritis, a disorder of children. Uh, and they looked at 105 patients with ERA and divided them up into those who had axial involvement and those with peripheral. It was roughly 50-50, so more or less. Those who had axial ERA were more likely to be a little older. They had a longer delay in getting their diagnosis. They had higher inflammatory markers. They had more hip disease, and they were more likely to receive biologics. Those of you who take care of kids with um, juvenile arthritis uh, many times see these patients and certainly see this pattern. We certainly know in adults that if you have axial disease, there's more hip disease. Uh, and in my times in the pediatric rheumatology clinics, I've also seen that as well, that uh, sacroiliitis does associate with hip disease. Sometimes the hip disease precedes the sacroiliitis in kids. But nonetheless, ERA, something to um, note. Um, a lesson comes from uh, to us, a confirmatory lesson, I would say, from Lancet uh, GI and the GI world. It's a study of over 200 patients with uh, Crohn's disease. These are adult patients. And they looked at the success rates in withdrawing therapy. You know, it's all the rage in rheumatology. I don't know why you do it. Um, it takes you so long, so hard to get people in remission. And what, you want to stop therapy, really? I get that it's sometimes needed because of cost or side effects, or patients are just hell-bent on getting off drugs, which is always a bad idea. But it's fraught with all kinds of difficulty. And we see this here in these 211 adult Crohn's patients who were either treated, they were treated with infliximab um, and an immunosuppressant. And they were in remission for more than six months. And the randomized trial either kept them on the combination, and their, you know, their immunosuppressant is going to be 6-MP or azathioprine or something like that. Um, they kept them on the combination of infliximab and the immunosuppressant, or they withdrew the immunosuppressant or the infliximab. And guess what happened? If you withdrew the immunosuppressant or you stayed on both drugs, flare rates over the next two years were about 10%. But if you stopped the infliximab, uh-oh, the flare rate was, survey says, I think it was 30-something percent, uh, 36%. The bottom line is that if you stop infliximab, you have a three-and-a-half to five-fold increased risk of a flare. And such is the case in your arthritis patients if you stop, especially the biologic, the more expensive therapy. It's the price you pay, and it comes in patient outcomes. Uh, a study from Italy looked at um, why patients fail um, with conventional DMRs or biologic DMRs. It's sort of standard fare. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting retrospective study of 718 RA patients, and you would expect, you know, how the pe people fail their, their drugs for, you know, intolerance and efficacy, about 20%, uh, acute drug reactions, 5%, severe infections, 
1% or less. But I think that, to me, the interesting tidbit in this study was they looked at patients who failed multiple drugs. And that number was 5.7 for conventional DMARDs and 8.4 for those who are on biologic DMARDs. And that number, 8.4, especially on the biologic DMARDs, is, is, is amazingly close to the number I have quoted to you before about the frequency of difficult-to-treat RA, D2TRA, difficult-to-treat RA, as defined by ULAR, the incidence rate is about 10%, and that's what they come up with here in this Italy study. Now, you again, the, it's lower in the, as far as um, multiple um, conventional DMARD failures, but then again, those are self-selected to probably be less severe disease, right? They would not be going into biologics unless you needed biologics. Now, there are other reasons why as well. So I, anyway, I find this point, this, um, the point of this paper to be that there, we're always going to be dealing with this subset of around 10% of patients that are difficult to treat, and we need to have a strategy. The Journal of Clinical Investigation had, I thought, an interesting report about NLRP12. We've often talked about NLRP3, part of the inflammasome and autoinflammatory diseases. NLRP12 is a negative regulator of inflammation, largely by inhibiting NF-kappa-B signaling. Um, it is also uh, important in uh, down-regulating the innate immune response and type 1 interferon production. And this particular report in JCI says that it's deficient in SLE patients. So they looked at SLE patients, their peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and they had low levels of uh, NLRP12. This was inversely correlated with their interferon levels and also high disease activity. NLRP12 knockouts or deficiency uh, in animal models increases autoantibodies, increases inflammation, and increases renal damage in lupus animal models. Uh, why is this important? Well, gee, this sounds like it's important in disease generation. It sounds like it would be a great target for future therapies, don't you think? We'll see if that happens. Grappa put out another report this week. Uh, Grappa guidelines, I think, are great. This was an update on, on treating enthesitis in PSA patients. Um, turns out that enthesitis affects at least 30% of patients with psoriatic arthritis. And those who have uh, enthesitis and PSA, the enthesitis is associated with more severe disease, more x-ray damage, and poorer outcomes. It's a bad sign when you have, a bad sign when you have enthesitis and those patients really do need to be treated more aggressively. Uh, JAMA Dermatology had, a, I thought, a cool little report about systemic sclerosis being associated with Dagos-like lesions. Dagos-like lesions are these porcelain papules that have a red border, and I love that description. Look it up online. It really looks just like that, a porcelain papule with a, with a, a ring of red around it. Um, in 506 systemic sclerosis patients, they saw this in 5.3% uh, of patients. So it's not that common. It always seems to occur at least 90% of the time in the fingers. And when you, this was seen in SSS, SSC patients, they had more uh, acroosteolysis, digital ulcers, calcinosis, but it was not associated with organ disease like renal choriasis, lung disease, ILD, pulmonary hypertension. So. Again, I, I, you know, I can't say I've ever, I've seen a lot of these. I actually, now I, I know what I'm looking for. 
I could remember a few patients who had these and I sent them to the dermatologist, um, but they're Dagos-like lesions. Dagos uh, lesions are, or Dagos diseases, is a, a occlusive vasculopathy. Um, and is that not what's going on in scleroderma at the small vessel level? Annals of Internal Medicine has an, uh, a, a comparison of high dose versus low dose uh, exercise therapy in patients with knee OA. Um, the study clearly shows that there's no difference between the two. What's the difference between high dose and low dose? It was 90 minutes of exercise and more exercises, uh, more variety versus 20 to 30 minutes of exercise a few times a week. So I guess it's important just to get out there and move to be vigorous and, um, and, and whatnot may not uh, have the benefits one might see. There were certain benefits, especially for um, those with athletic injuries and whatnot to their knees. Uh, a multi-center study combined all their patients with Stills disease, uh, 80 of them, and tried to develop their own criteria for adult onset Stills disease, and they compared this to 60 controls. They came up with, I think, four criterion that had a sensitivity of 92% that was greater than the Yamaguchi criteria. It was performed at 79% and the Fartrell criteria at 76%. What were these criteria? Number one, the typical rash of Stills disease, you get three points. Number two, the fever being greater than 39 degrees centigrade, that gets you two points. Uh, let's see, yeah, that's right. Pharyngitis gets you two points. Arthritis gets you two points. The neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio greater than uh, four gets you two points, and one point for glycosylated ferritin uh, being less than 20%. I've never gotten a glycosylated, glycosylated ferritin because that's not an easy test. It's not readily available. But I, I, I like their focus here. I like some of their stats. I think that um, those of you who struggle with making a diagnosis could benefit from this kind of approach. It's time to play Know Your Numbers. That, you know, that famous game we play almost every other week, every other year. Um, this is, comes from an article in BMJ Open. And knowing your numbers, the question is, what is the number you quote to your patients about the risk of chronic steroid therapy? You know the things that happen, hyperglycemia, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, weight gain. Um, you know, which one of these do you focus on and what numbers do you put out there? Of the ones I mentioned, which one do you think was the highest? I'm looking at the numbers here. The number that was highest was number one at 10% hyperglycemia. Interestingly, if it was steroids given for lung, chronic lung disease, hyperglycemia goes up to 22% in that cohort. What's next highest? Next highest was hyperlipidemia at 8%. Oh, never mind. No, I, I, big, big mistake. Weight gain was number one at 13%. And then to go down the list, uh, hypertension was 6% and hyperlipidemia was 8%. So I think these are numbers that are worth reviewing and worth uh, having uh, written down or that we can quote accurately when, you know, I always tell patients when starting steroids, you know, it's the best drug and the worst drug ever, but let me tell you the side effects. And I go through all 29 of them, you know, stretch marks, weight gain, cataracts, blindness, mild infections, severe infections, hospitalizable infections, 
bizarro infections, uh, you know, stomach ulcer. I mean, you just go on and on and on and on. And, you know, of course, at the end, they're like, why are you putting me on this medicine? And that's what you want. You want them to be motivated to get off the steroids, just like you need to be motivated to stop the steroids sometime in the future. Since we're playing Know Your Numbers, maybe you should know the cost of drugs. Um, I think in the beginning of the year, we, we found a report that said that Starting the year, 350 drugs in the United States were going to start out 2023 with a new increased price. Well, let's scratch that. It's now almost 1,000 drugs. 800, 983 drugs are increasing their price in 2023. This largely affects arthritis drugs, cancer drugs. Um, and the average price increase is about 5.6%. You know, I find it amazing that Humira, which goes on becomes generic in January of 2023 is yet again increasing its price 8%. It is the most expensive of the arthritis biologics and they did make over $20 billion last year worldwide, um, but yet they're going generic. Isn't that odd? Um, used to Kinemab's increasing uh, 4%. That's Stellara. Um, when uh, Humira is increasing its price, we have new um, Amgevita, the biosimilar, being introduced at a discount, right? But it's not that great a discount. It's like 5% or it could be 55% with a big rebate. So there's going to be that game being played. You know, I, for once, I, I really wish I was practicing in, in Europe where the discounts on biosimilars are big. They're 30 to 60% at least, um, depending on the country. Here, I don't know why we're screwing around with 5% discounts, or we'll give you a big one and a big rebate so um, the insurance companies and, and pharmacy benefit managers can have these gigantic bonuses. Um, it's a bit disgusting, I must say. Um, but, you know, our drugs are amongst the most popular. I wonder how much z uh, enthusiasm we would have in prescribing if we actually knew the price of the drug and the actual price to the patient. Um, anyway, let's move on before I um, really bring everyone down with that, that game we started out playing, Know Your Numbers. I thought it was a fun game, but it's really, it turns out, didn't it? Um, systemic sclerosis, some encouragement here. A, a new antifibrotic called FT011 um, uh, in a pilot trial of 30 patients looked impressive. 400 versus 200 versus placebo. Um, significant improvement in the CRIS score, composite score for scleroderma outcomes. Um, it was only, I think, a 12-week trial. They have an, uh, uh, an open-label extension. Again, I like any positive data when it comes to systemic sclerosis. So I, I'm still perplexed by these reports. I've seen many of them in the last two years about methotrexate increasing skin cancer risk. And so I wrote about this week with um, one report from the British Journal of Cancer that showed in a Danish, you know, Danish registry data is like faultless, a, a case control study looking at histologically proven incident cases of basal cell, squamous cell, or malignant melanoma and with, with about 20,000 patients, you know, in, in the, each group. Um, and, and they matched uh, those um, 10 to 1 to controls and looked at associations with methotrexate and they showed that methotrexate increased the risk of basal cell 29%, odds ratio of 1.29. Squamous cell 61%, and these are significant increases by the way, 
um, based on the confidence intervals, uh, um, with an odds ratio of 1.61, and um, malignant melanoma 35%, and that's from methotrexate. Uh, at the same time, uh, Sion Kim et al. Um, in clinical and experimental rheumatology looked at uh, those over age 65 who were starting either methotrexate or hydroxychloroquine, and they propensity matched uh, 29,000 cases with each, and they showed that the rates of developing a skin cancer was about the same, about 25 cases per 1,000 patient years with a hazard ratio that was 1.03, not significant. Um, so what's the takeaways here? Number one, the incidence rates here of 25 per 1,000 patients starting hydroxychloroquine or methotrexate tells you what you probably would have thought anyway. That's 2.5 per 100 patient years. It's out there. You know, I mean, everyone's lifetime, everyone, all of us have a lifetime risk of skin cancer of 20%. Um, in, in these RA patients starting these drugs, it's 2.5 cases per 100, um, which means that you need to look for it. And the data from the British Journal of Cancer suggests it might be increased. So I don't know. And, and then add to this fact that uh, your patients with chronic inflammation, especially RA, have a constitutively higher risk of non-melanoma skin cancers. So it gets confusing. But I think the takeaway on this is pretty clear, that you really need to be doing skin checks on your patients. That means all clothes off, looking at all cracks and, and crevices and nooks and crannies. You know, patients' bodies are a lot like English muffins, aren't they? A lot of nooks and crannies. Well, you, yeah, you got to look at all of them. And, uh, and, and if you're not going to do it, you can't assume the primary care is going to do it. Or, so maybe you need to send them to the dermatologist for annual skin checks. And that's actually in the prescribing guidelines for um, the TNF inhibitors that say that patients should have, you know, be checked for skin cancers on a regular basis. Our last report is um, about the Paisley study. We've talked about the Paisley study uh, before. This is Ducravacitinib, the oral TIC2 inhibitor in a phase two uh, lupus trial. This is uh, 363 patients, um, and this was published in Arthritis and Rheumatism. Uh, it was presented at, at ULR and ACR this, uh, this last few meetings, and now we have it in print in ANR. They looked at 32-week responses with an SRI4 response, placebo responses over 30% again, but the Ducravacitin, either the three or six milligram BID, gave you a 50 to 58% response, and that was significant, as was the LL-DAS being significant, and the Class C50, Class C is skin measure uh, uh, for outcomes, uh, almost 70% versus 17% in placebo. So this looks good, but this is phase two. We anxiously await more studies with this TIC2 inhibitor in patients with lupus. Um, be sure to check out roomnow.live. Look at the agenda. Janet Pope is going to be there. She's going to be talking about decisive therapeutics in RA and having a great uh, panel. Um, we have a lot of great speakers. Hope to see you at Room Now Live. Take care. Bye.